A week or so ago, in preparation for my daily practice of mindfulness and prayer, I came across a stunning piece of information. In a reading by poet Mark Nepple, I learned that a baby chick doesn't just hatch. Well, it hatches. But the process of hatching is actually a terrifying event if you look at it from the perspective of the bird. In the moments before birth, the small hatchling has eaten its food. Its growing body presses against every curve and contour of the shell. There is no more room. There is no more food. The chick hatches because its body is painfully cramped inside the world of the egg. And it is starving. There is so much discomfort that the chick is driven to peck its way into whatever is on the other side of the world. Whatever is on the other side of safety because there is nothing else to do and survive. The world literally, literally breaks apart. The chick eats bits of its own shell and its body presses through the emerging cracks. Hatching is not graceful. There is wrestling and rolling around. There's crying and prying. There is exhaustion and power naps. You should see them, they just go. There is stumbling and trying to hold the head up while getting the feet underneath the body. Hatching is just not graceful. It is beautiful to behold, but I dare say the chick would not describe it that way. I think the chick would say, hatching is necessity. As Mark Nepple writes, once everything it has relied on falls away, the chick is born. It doesn't die it falls into the world. I think most of us can name a time when where we were, what we were doing, how we were being was so uncomfortable, so constraining, that there was literally nothing else to be done but peck away into whatever was on the other side of the egg. Whatever is on the other side of safety, because there was nothing else to do and still survive. It may have felt like death, but instead you fell into the, wor the new world. Whether we like it or not, discomfort, feeling cramped, feeling soul hungry, is the seed of transformation. My psychologist friend, Dr. Demena, says, everything changes. Change, 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 change. Oh, I wish I could do her accent. Change, 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 change. Yes, change happens. And we celebrate and mark this fact of living as well we should. 
But change is not transformation. Change, she says, is an occurrence that happens in the context of our own worldview, our own eggshell, if you will. Transformation is change that extends beyond the boundaries of our worldview. There is no way that that hatchling can imagine what is on the other side of that egg. It is discomfort that drives the chick to risk everything, to go beyond its worldview. This is transformation. So let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean. The first will be a personal example, and another will be a reflection on what has been happening over the course of this week. About 10 years ago, I had been asked to uh, perform with a small folk band in Omaha, Nebraska, at an outdoor city festival. And initially, I thought, oh, this is going to be fun. All of my family on my mother's side hails from Nebraska. And I thought, maybe I'll invite some of my cousins and they can meet me in Omaha and see what I'm up to and we can reconnect. And then this feeling of discomfort began to settle in. I have such fond memories of visiting my uncle's farm in Nebraska. My parents would settle around the big kitchen table with my aunt and uncle, yelling after us kids to stay out of those canyons and the tunnels the rains had carved through the limestone bluffs. You're going to get stuck in there. You're going to get stuck in there and break an arm or a leg, and nobody's going to find you. So don't you go into those canyons. Of course, that's exactly where we went. So we would slide and crawl through the tunnels, and we'd moo at the cows in the pastures down below and chase the chickens to my uncle's consternation. It was paradise. It was paradise on earth. I loved that farm. I loved my cousins. Looking back, it was a time when I felt absolutely free and absolutely loved. But as the years wore on and life began to shape us all, I realized that I had stopped connecting with my relatives. There was this growing divide between us, as wide as the canyons we used to play in as kids. My uncle, aunt, and cousins belonged to a very conservative Christian church. And I remember being surprised by some of the things they would say about God, about non-believers, about people of color, about homosexuals. What they said didn't seem to match up with this big experience of love that I felt. I just couldn't deal with the cognitive dissonance, so I set it aside as a kid. Then, as, as fate would have it, I became involved with my partner. 
As a young adult, as a young adult, I would watch my cousins as they played with their kids out on the lawn or openly kiss their spouse at family reunions, and I would find myself avoiding talking about anything other than my career. Career, 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 career. I was so boring. I stayed as far away from the subject of my own family as I possibly could. I attended funerals and weddings without my partner, Rebecca, knowing it would be too uncomfortable for both of us. And then finally, I just stopped going. That egg was getting mighty uncomfortable. My spirit was painfully cramped inside the shell of ideas about family, ideas about religion, narratives about who is normal and who is not. And I was starving. I was starving for the love I once felt and that deep sense of family. I was starving to have my full humanity, my whole and holy self. There was nothing else to do but what I did. My cousins arrived in Omaha with their kids and my aunt in tow. They listened to the concert beaming the whole way through. I was glad I was singing because I knew everything we had relied on up to that point for family connection, my silence, my acquiescence to definitions of family, to what is normal, understandings of religion, all of it would soon break apart and we would fall into another world. I couldn't guess what was gonna be on the other side. All I knew was that the current world was coming to an end. Now, I wasn't stupid. I knew who I needed to talk to first. I wasn't going to make a big announcement at the dinner table. I wanted to get my cousin Debbie off to the side and speak with her alone. But my aunt seemed to have this sixth sense that something was going to happen. She followed us wherever we went. I mean, she sat beside us at dinner, strolls around the park. There was my aunt. Finally, the e evening was nearly done, and I hadn't said anything. I was so disappointed. My cousins and aunt drove me to my hotel, and when I stepped out of the car, my cousin Debbie said, do you need any help? Yes, yes I do. <laughs> I need some help. I had one piece of luggage, very small for the plane. <laughs> I knew it was now or never. With the engine idling and my aunt and cousins in the car nearby, I said something like, uh, Look, I've been trying to set, tell you something all night, but I haven't had the chance. I wish I could do this differently, but this is what I got right here, right now. I am partnered with, um, okay, 
I mean, um, I am living with, uh, oh, let me start over. I am like married to a woman. What'd you say? Um, woman. We've been together for a really long time. And I know this may not agree with your religious views, but I'm hoping to be reconnected with you and the family, and I don't know how to do that and not tell you about who I really am. The evening could have gone a thousand different ways. I'd heard plenty of stories, but Grace intervened that night. Debbie took my hand and smiled with such tenderness. I don't care. I love you. What is your partner's name? When you watch a chick hatch, there seems to be this pivotal break that allows the rest of the process to transpire. There's a lot of rolling around with the egg still attached to some part of the chick. There's a lot of flopping around, trying to hold the head up, trying to comprehend wings outstretched instead of wings closed around the torso. So much of this was true for me and my family. There was and still is plenty of flopping around, shells of religious doctrine and narratives about what is normal, half attached to our bodies and our conversations. But the real transformation in all of this is not me coming out. That was just the pivotal crack. The real transformation is a shift in our family culture. It has something to do with bringing our full humanity, our whole and holy selves, to one another. Concepts of family and what it is to be together are shifting. My cousin's kids want to gather with me and my sisters whenever we come down to Nebraska because they sense that something real and authentic is happening. We see each other. As I say this, I am holding an image I saw in the paper on Tuesday morning. African-American women and men marching down Florissant Road in Ferguson, Missouri, with signs reading, I am a man. I am a woman people demanding to be seen in their full humanity, their whole and holy selves, in response to the killing of Michael Brown and the policing tactics 
practiced in their community. And I can't help but think of this new understanding of hatching. This egg, this egg we are all living in is getting mighty tight. As we are learning in our racial justice work, the egg I'm talking about is racism and white privilege, a social construct that was made up centuries ago and that we are living out to devastating effect. The construct or the egg says, white skin, white ways of looking at things, white ways of doing things are normal, are fully human and other expressions of skin tone, culture, and ways of viewing the world are somehow less, are somehow a little less, justifying all manners and forms of inequity. As I heard so powerfully spoken last Thursday at a vigil, at a vigil for Michael Brown and other dark-skinned people who have recently lost their lives. Racism is not the stupid remark your great uncle makes at the dinner table causing everyone to squirm. Racism is the air we breathe. That's what Dr. Heather Hackman says. It's a construct in which we all live that weaves its way through economics, policing, education, and everyday life, like walking down the middle of the street and ending up being shot to death. One of the speakers that night pointed out to those in attendance that we just can't believe that it's just happening in Ferguson, that it's also happening here in our communities, and it happened right after the vigil. This past Thursday, when a young black woman crossing the street in the crosswalk to attend the vigil, uh, she was startled by a cop car that had to slow down for her as they responded to a 911 call. She didn't even understand what she had done when six police cars pulled up to the Urban League and bundled her into the back seat of the squad car after the vigil, detaining and ticketing her for obstruction. Now I have to ask myself, would this have happened in my neighborhood? Would this have happened if that young woman looked like me, a middle-aged white woman? I don't think so. 
just don't think so. Friends, we are all in this egg, this racialized egg. We didn't construct it, we're just in it together. We are in it together, some to life-stressing, life-threatening disadvantage, and other, others to life-enhancing advantage. But regardless of where we are positioned in the egg, we are all starving. We are all starving, literally and or spiritually. Change or adjustments inside the world view of the egg is not enough. There is too much needless death, so much dissonance, so much disorder and disarray, so much discomfort that we are being driven to peck our way into whatever is on the other side of the world because there is nothing else to do and survive. Transformation is what we are truly longing for. Transformation. That change that is beyond our worldview, that lies beyond the walls of the egg. This pecking and prying, this wrestling and rolling around with the eggshell half attached to our bodies and the, our conversations, this is what's necessary. We are doing good work at this church. Our racial justice work is the right kind of work, the right kind of pecking. We are showing up, and it's good. That gathering at the Urban League on Thursday night was packed with every color, creed, and gendered form of human being. We were all there. And I think it surprised even the conveners how many people showed up. That night we were challenged to come again, to come again this coming Thursday night to learn and strategize about how to reshape the policing of our communities, especially communities of color. This church will be there. I will be there. And I hope many of you will join us we're going to put some information on our website and the Facebook page so you can join us. As a woman of faith, this is what I am called to do. This is where I'm called to be next Thursday night. As people of faith, we are being called to opening our hearts sharing, pecking and prying, rolling around with egg shells still attached, showing up for ourselves and showing up for our communities as we fall into the new world. Tender. Yes, tender. But driven to experience wings outstretched. 
This is what it means to live into our principles of inherent worth and dignity of every person. What it means to work for justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. This is what it means to live into shalom, peace that is born out of right relationship to one another, ourselves, and to that great and moving spirit of good and grace that I sometimes call God. Friends, there is no more room. There is no more food. Take heart. Trust the discomfort. Trust the broken heart. Trust the anger. Trust the tenderness. It's all a part of hatching. It's all a piece of transformation. May we peck and pry until we are born whole and holy in the new world. May it be so, and amen.